0: Once again, the world is witnessing war on a mass scale, this time in Ukraine with the invasion by Russia. But of course, there is always conflict in our world. Look around from Africa to the Middle East to parts of Asia as well. Why do we not seem to learn the lessons of conflict? World War I was supposed to be the war that ended all wars but the world is always in conflict, it seems, somewhere. Are we hard wired for war? Is the idea of peace just a dream? Margaret Macmillan is an award-winning historian. She's also a Professor of History at the University of Toronto and an emeritus professor of international history at Oxford University. Her book is War, How Conflict Shaped Us.
1: It's a debate that goes on and on. I tend to think we have free choice. I think we have certain things we've inherited as a result of evolution. And so we have an impulse to fight or flee if we feel threatened, but we also have altruistic impulses. We have impulses to protect those we care about, to protect ourselves. And so I think we may be a bundle of characteristics that we get through our biology and evolution. But I also think we make choices. And I think with war, it is very much a matter of choice because war is not something impulsive. It's not something that just happens. It's something that is, takes a great deal of planning, a great deal of thought, a great deal of deliberation. And so I think we make choices about war and I think certain cultures are more inclined to fight wars than others, but I don't think we are hardwired.
0: I'm interested in that part of the answer that certain cultures are more likely to wage war. Which cultures, and how do we define that?
1: I think we've seen cultures throughout history in which young men, and it is almost always young men, are brought up to think that fighting, that going to war, that being prepared to take other lives or or give up their own lives is the most noble thing they can aspire to. And so you had cultures like the Anglo-Irish ascendancy in Ireland, where young men of well-to-do families, landed families, were expected to go into the military. That's just what they did. And you can see it around the world. And you go back to ancient Sparta again. You have a culture where certain people, men from certain classes of society, are brought up to think that fighting is what they do, that going to war is what they do.
0: And you you make the point as well about ancient cultures. And you, you point out in your book that war has been with us for a very long time, organized conflict, thousands of years.
1: What's really interesting at the moment is that ancient archaeologists and and evolutionary biologists, among others, are pushing back into the past about what we know. And so we're finding out more about ancient corpses, for example, that some of them seem to have died as, as a result of traumas, which tend to come in war, broken bones, shattered ribs. We're uncovering more evidence that we have had organized warfare for quite a long time. Now, some would argue it came with agriculture, that when we settled down and became farmers rather than nomads, we began to have more to defend and, and more to take away. I think that's a debate that's still very much open. But as far as we can tell, we've been doing this a very long time indeed.
0: And if we're defining our terms here, war is not just violence. There is, there is violence, there is aggression. We can attack each other. But war is distinguished by its organisation.
1: That's what I would argue. I, you know, I don't take the sort of random violence that may co- happen at a football match, for example, or two people getting into dispute and, and throwing punches at each other. That's not war. War uses violence, but war uses it in a very disciplined way. And I think we understand that when we see how long it takes to turn people into soldiers or people who fly. I mean, it takes a great deal of training, and you don't just get someone who becomes a soldier overnight. I mean, we're seeing this in Ukraine, that you need the training to be able to fight in a disciplined way, to be able to make any difference.
0: And of course, the, the, the means to wage war is significant as well. And the Industrial Revolution, as you point out, was a, a, a significant change. It, it gave us the capacity to wage war on an industrial scale. How did war change as a result of the Industrial Revolution?
1: very briefly, what it did is make them bigger, more deadly, and last longer. And that was because the Industrial Revolution made it possible to produce the things that armies and navies and eventually air forces need on a very large scale. You know, you just have to think of how long it would take a gunsmith to make a gun by hand, making all the parts by hand, and compare that to a factory with an assembly line with interchangeable parts. And what that meant was you could put far more men, usually men, into the field. You could equip them, and you could keep them equipped. In the days before the Industrial Revolution, if an army came through, it was like a swarm of locusts because they would eat up everything in the neighborhood, and then they'd have to move on. But with the Industrial Revolution, you could put huge armies into the field and keep them there indefinitely in the case of the First World War for four years. And what the Industrial Revolution also did was just make war more deadly because it harnessed science and technology and often indeed spurred on science and technology to make weapons that were much more deadly. And so at the beginning of the 19th century, the average soldier had a musket, which wasn't particularly accurate and then had to be reloaded by hand. By the end of the 19th century, they had machine guns, which could spray bullets at, at an increasing rate.
0: And of course, with each catastrophic conflict, we like to imagine, don't we, that we are done with war, where remember the First World War, described as the war to end all wars, and within a generation the world is at war again. Why, after making such violent war on each other on an industrial scale, do we repeat it?
1: It's one of the great conundrums of, I think, our age. Although we remember with horror what happened in the war, there are those who remember it as glorious, Uh, or those who remember it because they want revenge. And the same motives that took nations, for example, to war before the 20th century, those motives are still there. It could be greed, you want to take something that someone else has, you want dominance, or perhaps you're motivated by an ideology. I mean, all these factors come into play in making war. So unfortunately, although we have now acquired much more deadly means of making war, we're still motivated by the same sorts of things. And we're seeing it again, of course, today in Ukraine. Um, you know, Putin wants to take over a large piece of territory for his own ambitions and Ukrainians don't want him to do it. And that leads to war or can lead to war when both sides won't back down.
0: Of course, there are many conflicts in our world and in various ways, the world has been in a constant state of war for the past century in various places. And yet, the war in Ukraine seems to have shocked us in ways that Perhaps other conflicts haven't. Why is that?
1: Some people are saying there's a racial element that people in the West can identify more easily with Ukrainians. Because I come from Canada, so I'm part of the West, we didn't take seriously wars in other parts of the world. And there may be something in that. It may be easier for people to look at people who look like them, have institutions like them, and say, well, we can imagine ourselves in that place. But what I think has also shocked us about it, is that although there have been a lot of wars, as you rightly say, and and there's been a war practically every year, I think, since 1945, somewhere in the world, this is one of the rare wars since 1945 where a state has invaded another state. So it's a state-to-state war, and we haven't had that many of those. We've had civil wars, we've had insurrections, we've had invasions and occupations, But this is taking us right back to the sort of wars that we had in earlier centuries. And it's a very, very dangerous precedent because there are other flashpoints around the world where other countries may be attempted to attack their neighbors and try and change the borders and seize land. I certainly feel it myself. We're looking at Ukraine and saying, is this a harbinger of, of what wars are going to be like in the future? And that is a very worrying prospect. And we're seeing... What a war between Russia and Ukraine means, but imagine a war, for example, between the United States and China or between China and, and India, which are not completely out of the realms of possibility.
0: Indeed, not out of the realms of possibility. And there is increasing concern about the potential or the likelihood of that, particularly over flashpoints such as Taiwan. You've written a lot about China and about China and the United States. What potential do you see to head off? what would be a catastrophic conflict?
1: It would be catastrophic. I mean, if we're looking at the sorts of weapons being used in Ukraine, we have only to to try and imagine what the sort of weapons at the disposal of the United States and China would do. This is an absolutely terrifying prospect, not just for those two countries, but in fact for the world as a whole. And I think we have to think that we are never beyond a rapprochement. I mean, there may be times when it is impossible to go on negotiating because one side simply won't negotiate. But I think as long as there is a possibility, I think we have to negotiate. And I think we have to pay more attention to diplomacy. But it's very important to have diplomats, to have people who are skilled at talking to others, who understand the other side, and also the role of of knowledge. I mean, I think you in Australia have been very conscious of the need to understand and know about China, then I think that is absolutely essential if if Australia is going to be able to negotiate with China. You know, I think there is still a great deal of room for the United States and China to work together. I mean, they certainly haven't reached the the point of no return.
0: And of course, in the worst case scenario of a conflict between the US and China, we would be talking potentially there of World War III. Pope Francis has made the observation that perhaps we're in World War III already in a piecemeal fashion with the various conflicts around the world and conflicts in cyberspace as well, because war, the nature of war, is changing. How do we even know if we're in a world war, given the way the world operates today and the nature of conflict today?
1: I don't think we're in a world war yet. I mean, I I read the article I think you're referring to by Peter Frankopan, and it is very concerning. And I think he makes a very strong case about why we should be concerned. But world wars tend to mean that the wars are linked up. And I think what we have at the moment is certainly the potential for a broader conflict. But what we have is is a number of wars going on, which aren't yet linked up. I mean, the Second World War was a world war because the United States and, and Britain and their allies were fighting both in the Pacific and in Europe and in the Atlantic. And so the wars were part of the same conflict. But I think what we're seeing at the moment is a series of separate conflicts, and I think we have to hope that they won't be linked up.
0: And today, of course, unlike World Wars I and II, or certainly towards the end of World War II, we saw this happen, but it is nuclear attack as well, that we have the capacity to destroy humanity. What is to stop us doing that? in the event of the worst possible outcome, a global conflict?
1: I wish I had that answer, and I don't. And it's a terrifying prospect because the nuclear weapons that the different powers that possess them have today on a scale, certainly in the case of the United States, China, and Russia, and Britain and France, that is much greater than the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And how we stop people from using them, I think, is one of the great questions of our time this is where we have to be really careful. And this is why I think the United States and and those supporting the Ukrainians are being very careful not to send their own troops into Ukraine because they don't want to make a very perilous situation any more dangerous than it is. But on the other hand, what do you do when you have aggression? I mean, this is the age-old problem, but it's now much more existential because of nuclear weapons. I think we are in a very tricky moment, actually, in the world
0: does the the MAD concept, mutually assured destruction, still hold?
1: Yes, I think it does. But it depends on the motives and the actions and the thinking of those who are actually in, in command. I mean, what kept the sort of peace in the Cold War was this mutually assured destruction, that the United States, if it had chosen to launch an attack first on the Soviet Union or vice versa, the other side would still have possessed enough nuclear weapons for a retaliatory strike. And so if you attacked the other power, you would be ensuring your own destruction. So it was a a balance. But what we now know, that balance came very close to being tipped over, that there were mistakes that very nearly launched the rocket. And so I think we have to be very careful. And I think we should also be very concerned about nuclear proliferation because the more countries that have nuclear weapons, the more dangerous it is. I mean, I think if Hitler had had nuclear weapons, he quite likely would have used them, even if it had meant the destruction of Germany. I mean, he'd already led Germany down the path to destruction, and he doesn't seem to have cared uh, very much about it. In the end, of course, he committed suicide rather than surrender. So I do think we have to be very concerned about those who control the nuclear weapons.
0: Margaret, if we look at war in our world today, one of the common threads is a question of identity. You could certainly cast the Ukraine war in that way. The wars of terrorism fought around ideas of, of identity. And faith still plays a significant role in those conflicts as well. How do you account for the role of faith in our world and how that can lead to violence? Even Vladimir Putin talks of the war in Ukraine as a holy war.
1: Well, Vladimir Putin would, wouldn't he? I mean, he's used every sort of possible excuse, and he claims Russian orthodoxy to be his faith. I don't know what his his real beliefs are, but I I think it's deeply cynical myself that he's using religion as as a cover for what he's doing. I'm not a theologian, but it seems to me that we have a sense that we want to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves, that we want to feel that we belong somewhere. And I think what is dangerous with any identity is when it becomes Mm all-encompassing, when it defines you, when you allow it to define you, and when you stop thinking of yourself as a complex being. I mean, we all have identities, but we're not defined by a single identity. But I think with religion, which promises or can promise a meaning beyond the individual life, I think it can be a very powerful attraction. And it can be so easily distorted. Um, It can be used by those who want to use it for their own ends. Um, you know, I've always found absolutely repulsive the spectacle of, of religious leaders sending young people off to their deaths when they're not prepared to go and die themselves. You know, you you always have this potential for the religion to be distorted and used for for which it was never set up in the first place. And so, I think one of the phenomena we have of the 21st century, which I was very surprised about, I think a lot of us were, was we're seeing wars of religion again something we had thought was from the Middle Ages. And, and yet again, religion has become, or distortion of religion has become a factor in, in making war.
0: Margaret Macmillan, j- just a final thought from you about the future of war. We've talked about war waged by humans and the, the way that technology has shaped that war. But of course, when we look ahead, there is the robot wars, the robot armies. What would that sort of conflict look like?
1: Well, you've ended with yet another terrifying question, because I think what we're seeing is the use of artificial intelligence in war, the creation of autonomous weapon systems. We're seeing some of them being used in the war in Ukraine, which have the capacity to make decisions and to choose between targets and to alter their trajectories, for example. And this, I think, is, again, something we should be deeply concerned about, because at what point do these autonomous weapon systems get out of our control? And I think we know that, you know, you can program a device to do something, but you may not be fully aware of what the results of your programming may be. It may have consequences you hadn't expected when you programmed them. And I think there have been discussions among various nations about whether to try and build in ethical constraints Mm. so that you, for example, build in constraints that civilians should not be attacked. And so far, the major powers, as far as I know, have resisted building in such constraints. And that, I think, is worrying. I think we have to really take very seriously developments in that field. And I think there has to be public input. I think there has to be public scrutiny. I think we have to really discuss very seriously the ethical implications of what it is we're beginning to create.
0: Margaret McMillan, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you again for giving us your time.
1: Thank you very much, Stan.
0: Margaret Macmillan, Professor of History at the University of Toronto. Her book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us.